Continuing in our exposition of the Word of God, we are in Titus, the second chapter, verses 11 through 15, which I'd like to read. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem, from every, to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let us pray. Father, you are holy, you are worthy of all of our worship, and Father, this is part of our worship in getting to know what your word says as you gave it, not as we so desire it to be. And we thank you for the message of the word of God. Thank you for the privilege of opening it up, and I pray as we study that you'd draw us close to your heart, you'd help us to live in this present day and age as we ought to for your honor and glory. And we commit our study to you with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. Entitled to today's message, as you might know from last week, The Grace and Glory of God, Incentives to Godly Living, and as this is part two. Last week was Communion Sunday, and we really just introduced the passage to us with our time. But we did notice, if you look at verses 11 to 15, that everything is centered around the two appearances of Jesus Christ. In the beginning in verse 11, you have the grace of God has appeared. And then you also have in verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior Christ Jesus. So it is centered around the first appearance, which is grace, and the second appearance, which is glory, which has given me the title for this particular passage. And both of those, we already introduced last week, both the grace of God and the glory of God are designed by God to be incentives to you and me. Incentives to you and me to live godly, to have our lives structured in such a way that they are godly. So we continue on that study today. And in looking at his first appearance, we find that in verses 11 and 12, that it was one of grace. And he started with the word for, we dealt with that last week. He says, for the grace of God. This is the reasons for the specifics that were given for the men and the women and the slaves in the context, the immediate context. And again, I would remind us that it's how the book started in chapter 1, verse 1, after saying that he was a bondservant of God. He says, for the faith of the chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. The knowledge of the truth coming to salvation, the saints of God, Paul as a slave of God, that is all so that we would be encouraged to live godly. And everything in the book of Titus is really geared toward our practical living godly for the glory of God, directed specifically to those at the island of Crete as Paul gave the message to Titus. And it said in verse 11, not only is this the reason, for the grace of God has appeared. It's past. That is part of the past. God's grace came 
And that grace of God appeared. We mentioned last week that that is unmerited favor. In other words, it's not deserved. <coughs> it cannot be earned. And it's seen in the coming of Jesus. Everything surrounding that first coming, everything surrounding the first appearance of Jesus Christ was all about grace in God's grace. And then we pick it up, and that's kind of where we left off. We pick it up also in verse 11 with the next expression, bringing salvation to all men. So the reason for the instruction that Titus gave in chapter 2 was the grace of God in the appearance which brings salvation to all men, bringing salvation. And I want to emphasize immediately, notice again, God's coming, the key is bringing salvation. To bring salvation, not social welfare. And these things that we're going to, I'm going to mention just very briefly are not bad in and of themselves, but it's not the purpose. And even as believers, if we go and are interested in people just getting social welfare, it is not going to deal with the heart. The message of God, the grace of God brings salvation, not environmental change. Not religion. There's a lot of religion going on in the world today. Not technology. Not even good works. And Titus has an emphasis on the fact that believers ought to be involved in good works. You see it again at the end of verse 14. It's everywhere emphasized in this book. <coughs> but God's grace, as seen in the first appearance of Jesus Christ, is centered around salvation. And that is the message that we have. And that is the good news that the world needs to hear. That is what they need to hear. Not social reform, but the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what man needs. Salvation, restoration to God, redemption of the soul, all these terminologies. And we talk about revival. I still hear, even in this church, people talk, what we need is revival. Revival happens individually within us. You can have a big to-do and have a big crowd and call for revival meetings, but unless revival happens within the heart of individuals, you have no revival. And it's got to be revival that happens within the individual heart, which starts with salvation. And, that, and that's so important. Now, when he says bringing salvation, I do think he's dealing with more than just the incarnation here. He's not just dealing with the fact of that first appearance and the birth of Jesus Christ, and that's all. Rather, I think when he talks about bringing salvation, he's dealing with the entire work of Jesus Christ in salvation. That is, yes, his incarnation, he's coming into the world, he's taking on flesh, but also the fact that he came and fulfilled scripture. He didn't come to destroy the law, he came to fulfill the law. It also centers on the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, the cross. Without the death of Christ, without the cross of Calvary, there is no mercy seat. There is no satisfaction of the righteous judgment of God. We needed that. There is a burial. There was an actual death. And there is a resurrection. All of that is centered in those words when it talks about the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation, not just the appearance in that little babe in Bethlehem. That was humble, yes. It was the Lord Jesus Christ came, but not just to bring uh, that birth, but it says that he came to reveal the Father to us. Part of his responsibility was the revelation of the Father in the appearance of Jesus Christ, in who he was, and to redeem the souls of men. 
So we have a great message. It is a message of grace that still needs to go out. It is what God has given us that we need to bring, and that is to bring salvation and the message of salvation, which is Jesus Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost. And then he has this expression, to all men. Uh, the reason he's given those incentives is the grace of God, and it brings salvation to all men. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you look in the immediate context, he's been talking about the bond and the free. He has talked about the Jew and the Gentile. Certainly, it brings that, and certainly, it brings salvation to male and female. Let me tell you, first of all, this is not dealing with universal salvation. And there's a lot of talk today about the Reformation, and there's a lot of talk today about reform. Their fight was against universal salvation. And their fight was against the Roman Catholic Church. That is the primary fight that they had, and we thank God for that. There is no universal salvation taught in Scripture. Scripture is very clear that very few will find the way, that it is very broad to those who don't. There is a real place called hell, and everyone will not be in heaven. Everyone will not be redeemed. So this cannot be dealing when it says to all men universal salvation. And I will say very strongly that nor do I believe that you can limit the all men here. That is the other side of the coin. That, oh, he's obviously talking about the old and the young. He's talking about the slave and the non-slave and the Jew and the Gentile. And that's all that he's dealing with. I think that's a restriction you're putting on the text that is not there. And we need to be careful because some text, there is a limitation to what is said. Other text, there is not. But he is saying that it has appeared to all men. He is bringing salvation to all men. Turn with me to three texts for a reason here this morning. Very briefly on this. But go to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. It's nearby. Just so you see a few things here. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, in verse 4, it says he desires all men to be saved. All men will not be saved. I am a firm believer, this church is a firm believer in election. Not everyone will be saved. Okay, it's his desire and to come to the knowledge of the truth. He very clearly says that. If you look at verse 6, he says, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. And if you look at chapter five, or 4 excuse me, of the same book, in verse 10, it says... For it is for this we labor and strive because we are fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially, and obviously there's a special group and that would be those who have appropriated salvation, who have received the gift of God, and that is especially of believers. But is there, there is a sense of talking about all men. And I wanted you to look at one more text. Go with me to Romans 3. All of this in understanding when he says in Titus, he's bringing salvation to all men. It doesn't mean everyone will get saved. Nor does it mean that we should restrict it to just the certain people like slaves or old or young. I don't believe that restriction is called for the word all there is what I am saying. In Romans chapter 3, verse 9, what shall we say then? Are we better than they? No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. 
And if I stop there alone, I don't know of anyone that says, well, that just means Jews and Greeks, but it doesn't mean everybody. Not everybody's a sinner. If you get down to verse 23 of the same passage, it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Is it just the Jews and the Gentiles? Is it just the bond and the free, but not all men have sinned? I don't know anybody that interprets it that way. Everyone is a sinner. And there are times in which it is to be taken that way. So in Titus, he's not giving us universal salvation. He's bringing, he's appeared, he's brought salvation to all men. Not everyone will believe, and I don't think we ought to restrict it. The best commentary, and it's not, and some of you know that I read a number of commentaries, and um, you might think that I picked this one because he's one of my favorite. No, I thought it was the clearest explanation. I'll tell you right where it comes from, and listen carefully to what it says. I'll only give you a couple of highlights on this all men. It comes from John MacArthur's commentary on Titus. Here's what he says. He says, to all men does not, as some maintain, refer to universal salvation. I would agree with that. But rather to universal opportunity for salvation. He also says at the end of the passage, he doesn't finish with that, he goes on for several other paragraphs, referring to the five points of Calvinism and everything else in between. And he comes down to this and he says this. In his atoning death, Christ did not save all men spiritually, but provided the means of salvation to all men. When God calls, and I'm still quoting, on all sinners to believe, he does not command them to believe that they are all divinely chosen or that Christ died especially for them. He commands them to believe that Jesus died for all sinners of the world. He does not offer salvation to a person either as the elect or the non-elect, but simply as a sinner, end quote. And I think that's the most accurate I've seen. The bottom line is he's not even dealing with election or non-election. The point is he offers it. He's appeared to all men, and all men are without excuse because they are sinners, and Christ died for them. So in the context, what we're saying is his light in his appearance, his light in his gospel, if you want to go back to the Greek word, his epiphany, if you will, has appeared to all men. It's appeared to all men. Men are without excuse. God gives them light out of darkness. It's true, man will not come to believe because he's dead in his trespasses and sins unless God opens his heart. But God has shown his grace in his son, and that salvation has appeared to all men, simply put. So, if you profess faith in Christ, if you've seen that appearance of Christ and you believe that he came and you've accepted that salvation, what does it mean? And that's the crux of it. Here's the crux of the teaching of chapters 11, uh, chapter 2, 11 through 15. What does all of that mean? You can end up getting involved in a theological debate about what I've just said and miss everything else this morning, and you go nowhere. Nowhere. Why? Because the past is to impact the present, verse 12. It says, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. The past appearance of Christ has an effect, not just for her theological debate, way beyond that. That profession of faith should have an impact 
that grace of God, that salvation of God, he says, instructs us. That word instruct means to educate. It means to train us. It means to teach us. That grace of God, that salvation that has come, has some instruction in it. It has teaching with it. It has guidelines. Some of it is negative, and some of it is positive, according to verse 12. What is the negative? It gives us instruction, the salvation, what we've trusted in. Gives us instruction, number one, on the negative side, to deny ungodliness. That's what it should have. If you make a profession of faith and there's no denying of ungodliness, then you're missing the boat. It isn't, as we said last week, just a ticket to heaven. It should impact the way we live. And let me pause for a second. This local assembly and every local assembly. If we profess faith in Christ and then as the world looks at us, all they see is destruction by believers and no living it out at work and no living it out in the neighborhood and no talking about the things of God or interest in the things of God. What reality is there to it? If you say you belong to Christ and no one at work knows that and no one in your neighborhood knows that and your contacts don't know that, what impact do you have at all? Why do you say that? To deny ungodliness, I purposely, because of the small group study, went back to Bridges' book on respectable sins. And every one of you should be in a small group if it's at all possible to get in there. And here's what he says, and I quote in that book. Ungodliness describes an attitude toward God, while unrighteousness refers to the sinful actions. One is dealing with an attitude toward God, he says, the other the sinful actions. Why bring that up? Keep your finger here and go to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1 and in verse 18, a very well-known passage. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, watch, against all ungodliness, that is an attitude toward God, and unrighteousness, that is the actions of men, the sinful actions. Unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That is where the wrath of God comes down on. So it tells us in Titus, as he's telling Titus to instruct the believers there in Crete, he said that salvation that's appeared to all men instructs them to, number one, deny ungodliness. It is an attitude. I put it this way in practical terms for me. Hopefully it'll help you. When we talk about ungodliness, it's an attitude. It is living a life with little or no thought toward God. Think about that. As you go through your day, as I go through my day, how much is God in our thoughts, honestly? That's what it means. Not toward God. Ungodliness. It's not toward God. Our lives and our attitudes should be thinking not about our reputation, not about our way of anything, but it should be thinking about God 
and it's what God would have. And then our actions would be the words, the deeds, the works that come out. We are no longer under the power of sin. As believers and those who have professed faith in Christ and have come to salvation through the work of Christ, we are instructed now that we are not under the power of sin. And we now have a life with God. We now are a member of the childhood of God. We are part of the body of Christ. And our thoughts should be in pleasing him. And so we should deny anything that is not Godward. We should deny worldly lust, it says in verse 12. What is that negative? Let me give you the practicality. It is greed. It is pride. It is selflessness. We think of the others. We have our set of sins that we just, you know, murder. Of course it is. That's in there. Immorality, yes. But that's it. And those are the ones, the ugliness of those that we want to attack. And we don't think about the worldly lust such as greed, pride, selfishness, impatience, anger, judgmentalism, unforgiving spirit. Should I continue on? Those are the worldly lusts. That's what's in our members that want to take over. And it tells us that if you belong to God, the instruction is to turn away from ungodliness toward godliness, to turn away from those worldly desires that are pulling at us, and to look to God. It's fine here on a Sunday morning, as I said, but what happens during the week? What controls us? Is it impatience? Is it judgmentalism? Is it unforgiving spirit? Is it those lusts? Is it a, a life that has very little time even in our thought process and attitude toward God. Remember what we looked at last week? I won't go back there. Romans chapter 6. Because of the grace of God, verse 11, are we to continue in sin so that grace should abound? God forbid. We're not under that power. That's the negative side. What about the positive side? Positive side is in verse 12. It's to live. To live, we should be actively doing something. We should be actively involved, not sleeping. We should be redeeming the time. We should be aware of the world we live in. And how are we to live? We're to live sensibly. That is not a new term to us if we've been studying Titus and you've been with me in the study. Why? We found it in chapter 1, verse 8, with the elders. We found it in chapter 2, verse 2 with the older men. We found it in chapter 2, verse 5, right at the beginning, where it's talking about the younger women. We found it in chapter 2, in verse 6, the younger men. And we've seen it over and over. What is it? Now he charges us that because of the grace of God, because of that first appearing, we should be living sensibly. We've already studied it. What does it mean? To have a sound mind. We are to think right throughout the week, you and I, throughout the day. We're to have proper thinking. What does that mean? Let, re let me remind you of what we've studied. We are not to be distracted by circumstances. If we're honest, the circumstances of life, and they are coming every day, 
but we are overtaken oftenly by the circumstances that come on. We are influenced by the thoughts of others, by the actions of others. And what happens is we don't make sound judgments. This is saying just the opposite. Because we know Christ, we are to live sensibly. We are to be involved in making sound judgments. It avoids what is known as the unproductive. It is able to set its priorities. In what way? To look at the bigger picture of what God is doing. To look at the bigger picture of what God is doing in our individual lives. In the life of his body. In the life of his church. And we keep that in focus. You know, folks, we can get really bogged down so much in our own lives and get fo lose focus on the salvation of other souls, lose focus on the glory of God here. Is the paint color important? Of course it is, to some degree. Is whether or not you call things Sunday school or Christian growth classes important? To some degree. That's not the big picture. Is what's really important to be a praying church or to have something called prayer meeting? Depends on who you're talking to. But what's the bigger picture? The bigger picture in the glory of God, the bigger picture is to be functioning in a way as a local assembly that all of those things are just assets to bring glory to God. All of the things, how we sing, what we sing, what we do, prayer breakfasts, whatever it is. I'm thrilled that the senior saints came and had a prayer breakfast. They should enjoy some food too. But to have a prayer time, we need that. We've talked about ad hoc prayer groups. We need that. We need you praying at home. We need you meeting to pray. We need you involved in the things of God. And someone who has a sensible life lives in that situation. Let me make it real practical. What happens when a decision is made, let's say, first of all, in your family, second of all, maybe in other believers' lives, thirdly, maybe in the local church by leadership, what happens when decisions are made that you don't agree with? Well, someone who's living a sensible life, living with sound thinking, goes beyond just the decision and is able to look at the bigger picture and the importance of functioning properly with God. Secondly, he gives another positive. Not only does it teach us to live sensibly, but to live righteously. You know what that term means. It's holy. He avoids the impurities. How is that possible? Only one way, not in your flesh, not in my flesh. That's the problem that's usually there. We try to live a godly life by our own power. No. God has given us the indwelling Holy Spirit. God has given us the Spirit of God, and by his power, as we yield to the Spirit of God, we are even able to live righteously. That's what that first appearance teaches us. That's what that salvation that came teaches us. Not ungodliness, but righteousness. Not ungodliness, but the third one, godly. Our life is ordered around that which honors him. The wishes of God. To make it very practical with you, just picking out a verse that's commonly used, it's the one in Proverbs. 
right? In all our ways acknowledge him and he will direct our paths. That's what it instructs us to do. Not my will, your will be done. Not pushing what I want, but what would please God and what God wants. And what am I saying? The essence of verses 11 and 12 is that first appearance that has brought us salvation. The first appearing of God that brings salvation has instruction with it. It's not just fine, God saved my soul and it's over. It's a daily walk with God in outworking that's got good thinking, that's pursuing righteousness and godliness by the power of God, that denies ungodliness and doesn't give in to the worldly desires of the flesh. That's what it is. So because of the past, position in Christ and the profession that we make, we should have an incentive to live for God. But if that isn't enough, he then goes to the second coming, the second appearance. What is that? Verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. The second appearance of Jesus Christ is not going to be as humble as the first one was. He always has grace, but when he comes back, he's coming in glory. What should our salvation do? It should cause us to live godly. And now as we get into verses 13 and 14, the first incentive should be that we are to live our lives looking. What do you mean? <clears throat> we ought to live our lives, according to verse 13, looking for something. What is it? The second appearing. Do we really look, do we really live looking for that appearance of Christ? Ask yourself that question honestly. What does it mean looking? It means to long for. There's an eagerness that's involved with this word that's used here. There is an ex expectation. Do we live every day with that expectation? Now that doesn't mean you can't make plans. We make plans for vacations. We make plans to do things. You probably have plans for what you're going to be doing today. It's not saying we're not to live with doing that, but we are to live. That salvation in Christ has something in that we should be living our lives looking in anticipation of the second coming of Christ. I would be willing to say that most Christians talk about the second coming of Christ. They talk about eschatology. That's not the question. Do you live looking for it? Answer this question in your own mind and heart this morning. Would you be upset if the Lord came in the next five minutes? Would your plans be so disrupted but I want to get married. But I want to have children. I got the big job interview this week. Can't you just wait one more week? Think about it. It's really practical. Or are we really living? We should be living as if, listen, we truly do expect his return at any moment. How do we do that? 
I won't turn there, but I think that's what the, the passage is called, the prodigal son. I really believe that's part of it. That father was looking for the son. He saw him, and he ran to him. He was living in anticipation that my son is going to come back. And he lived that way. What happens if you're living in anticipation of somebody coming? Let's make it very simple. What happens if you're living in anticipation of a baby coming into the world, right? You don't buy any diapers. You don't buy any clothes. You don't set up a nursery for the baby, right? You just wait. And then it happens, and you'll say, we'll figure it out. How are you going to get him to the hospital? I don't know. I don't need to worry about buying a car seat. They'll just let him come in a box or something, right? Now, I'm being kind of silly, but think about it. If some guest was coming to your house and you were anticipating a visitor that's coming, is there any preparation that you do? Ladies, do you get your house ready? Do you get it cleaned? Do you make sure the sheets are changed? Do you make sure you get ready? You anticipate something's going to happen. How much anticipation do we have? Do we work hard to get ready? You know, we're praying for these college students, and I hope you are. And we mentioned John. Is he anticipating graduation? I hope so. I don't know when he's walking, but is he going to anticipate it? How does he anticipate it? He doesn't do any work. He just waits. Hey, it's coming. I don't think so. Hard work. Graduation. There's an expectation. I need to achieve. I want to get ready for that. When you go for an interview, folks, right? You don't prepare a resume. I'll just go. They'll like me. I look good. I don't have to worry. I can convince them. No, we prepare. And what I'm saying is our lives should be lived in such a way that we are looking for the blessed hope. We are eagerly awaiting for it, and it's causing actions to happen in the life that really show that we're looking for them to come. Why? The next time, folks, he's coming in glory. The next time he's coming to judge, and you say, well, there's no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. That's right. But that's not the only passage on judgment. For we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. He's talking to believers. For those things that have been done in the body, were we looking? Were we living in anticipation? And oh boy, I love it. And personally, I think it's one of the clearest passages. That's my personal opinion. I have looked at some of the commentaries and the language on it. I think it's clear. The deity of Christ is right here. It's right here. Our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. And there's a possibility of structuring that a little differently grammatically, but you know what? It comes out to be the same thing. He's our Savior and He's our God. That's what distinguishes Him. The other religions of the world are looking to men. They're looking to dead men that are in graves and have rotted 
We're looking to a Savior whose part of the gospel message was he resurrected the third day according to the scriptures. He's seated at the right hand of God. We serve a living Savior. We have a God who is the God who created the universe, who is the God who came into this world and took on flesh, who is the image and likeness of the one true living God, and he is our Savior. And we are looking for the appearance of him. We should be. Isn't that true when it comes to a wedding? You're just waiting for that bride to come down the aisle. Or she's waiting and looking ahead. Is he there? Did he, did he stay? Is he in the front? Right? There's, a, there's looking for it and anticipated and all the plans that go into it. Why? Because we're excited. What I'm trying to get you to grasp just out of 13, if nothing else, and you think I'm crazy, it's this. That the life of a believer is to also live in anticipation of the future the appearing of our great God and Savior. And it's to affect the way we live. And we ought to be involved in preparing for that. Not just accumulating and leaving an inheritance behind. You're going to leave everything. But it's living. And that's the second aspect. We're to be living, looking, in verse 14, we are to be living, the way I put it is this, just to make it an L. Be living, laboring. Laboring. Be living your Christian life looking. Be living, living your Christian life laboring for the Lord. Verse 14, who gave himself for us. Why? To redeem us. There's the plan of salvation. From every lawless deed and to purify himself, a people for his own possession. You say, praise the Lord, but it doesn't finish. There's four more words. Zealous, eager, eager to the point of coveting, if you will, in a good sense. Coveting after what? Good deeds. We are to be involved in good deeds. It's everywhere in this book. It comes up again. Remember, look at verse 7 of chapter 2. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds. Yes, good deeds do not save anyone. We're going to see that in chapter 3 again in Titus. There is no salvation by good deeds. But as a believer, we are called to be very active. Go with me to that familiar passage, Ephesians chapter 2. Take a look at it again. It is to grow out of the Christian life. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. I'll go back to verse 8. We know it well. For by grace you have been saved. Titus is saying, the grace of God appeared to all men. You're saved through faith, not of, your, not of yourselves, the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Why? For with his workmanship, he did the work, he saved us, he calls us. Yes, election is clear. We're created in Christ Jesus for what purpose, folks? What does it say? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should what? We should what? Walk in them. We should order our steps at that. Our life is to be involved. 
You know, we say, well, man can't do anything good. Listen, you're called to good works. I'm called to good works. Toward our neighbor. Love those, pray for those who despitefully use you. Love your enemies. Do good to those who do not do good to you. Don't seek revenge. We're to be eager for that. You see, if, to make it practical, hopefully, you say you belong to God, you look at the grace of God, should be denying ungodliness, should be living with sober thinking. What is that sober thinking? He's coming back. He's coming back. I am to be prepared. I am to be ready. How do I do that? By laboring. What do you mean laboring? Just busy? No, it's very possible to be busy in a lot of things and do nothing for the glory of God. But if I'm thinking soberly, and if I've got the bigger picture, my labor will not be in vain in the Lord, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It won't be. Why? My focus will be right. I will be seeking to help others. I will be seeking to do good toward others. Good works are an outgrowth of the Christian life. Let me ask you something, real practical. When is the last time you did a good work for someone else? Anyone, saved or unsaved, that you showed kindness, went out of your way, when it hurt to help someone financially because they were worse off than you to give up some of your time freely to help someone else who had a big need. Did you or I did anything for the glory of God, not because I'm forced to it, but because I love God, I'm looking for his return, and Lord, I want to do this. I just want to help someone else. His message all the way through to Titus is your elders, your old men, your young men, your old women, your young women, the slaves. Help them to get their focus. They profess faith and salvation. Let them live it. Let them do it in practical ways. Let them be filled with the life. Let them be zealous for good works. And then he closes with this in verse 15. These things speak, exhort, reprove with all authority. Why would he say that? Why would he say that I'm commanding you and you ought to command the people to do this? Because there'll be resistance. Let no one disregard you. Why? Titus had quite a task. He was on an island where there were a lot of ungodliness, as I've already mentioned when I introduced the book. And now he's got professing believers all scattered about, listen, no structure, and that's why he gave them instruction for the structure of the local churches there. Make sure you get some elders in order. We need some structure. We need some accountability. Tell them how to live their lives. And Titus is not going to be well-received. Why? People want to say they belong to Christ and just add him on and just go live their lives the way they did before and be in the midst of sin and just be conforming. 
And to have Titus come along and say that's not the way to live, and to have Titus come along and say, look, if you really profess Christ, you should be different. And you should be living different, and you should be attracting people, and you should be living in anticipation of the one you trusted in that's coming back. And it should affect the people around you because of the way you act toward them in good works, because of the way you act toward one another. And he's going to have resistance. And so he says, Titus, speak with authority. You command it. Whether they like it or they don't, you command it. And don't let anyone disregard you. You have a task to do. Carry it out. And usually it's like a parent or anybody in authority in any type of position that it's easy to be critical. It's not easy to enter in. It's not easy to become a part of. It's not easy to get involved. But we're called to be involved. The whole point of verses 11 through 15, in my personal opinion, is the first coming of Christ, which is past, and the second coming of Christ, which is future, show different aspects of God, one in his grace, one in his glory, all of which are incentives for those who profess faith in Christ to live for him now, to let it affect our lives, to look and be seen as different, not odd, but different, so that people would see our lives and be attracted to the same Savior in God that we profess, that would be attracted to him, that he would get the glory, because that salvation is still to be preached through us. Yes, in our words, and also in our life by the way we live. Both things are true. Sometimes you have believers who say, I'll live the life, and then they never talk about God. Then you have others who talk about God all the time, and you wish they would shut up because they don't live for him. The balance is found in Romans, that we should confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus, but we should live it. And it should be seen. And we should be living in anticipation of his coming back. Yeah, we should be looking for the blessed hope, not just talking about eschatology classes, but letting it affect our lives. So we live soberly and godly in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. You know, we just sang about our nation this morning. My heart is I truly love this nation. And when I die, I hope that it'll be always been able to be said that I always love this nation no matter how bad it is. But the sin is so obvious here in our nation. And I do feel like Daniel, that I'm an unclean man in the midst of an unclean nation. But our God's still faithful and we're still to shine his lights here. And it won't happen unless the salvation that we profess or the return of Christ that we anticipate affects the way we live in the midst of it among ourselves and among the world. That's what they needed to do in Crete, and that's what we need to do in Methuen, Massachusetts, or wherever God has put us. May God help us to do that. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in God, I thank you and praise you that you so love the world that you send your only begotten Son. I thank you that you've provided salvation. It's our prayer that you'd open up the hearts of some dead people in this room 
that have not yet come to Christ. I need help them to see that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. That as sinners, they can do nothing to earn your favor. That you provided salvation in your Son, who not only died, but rose again the third day, all according to the Scriptures. Help them to believe on him. By faith, receive that gift that you sent. And I pray for everyone in this room that professes salvation and truly does belong to you. Lord, help us to look back on the time we believed, but help us to look forward and to live looking for that return. To live laboring for the glory of God so that, Father, our lives would reflect the salvation that we profess. That if others come in contact with us, they wouldn't see us as complainers. They wouldn't see us as causing disruption. They wouldn't see us as liars, cheaters, or anything else, but that they would see us as children of God who have been changed by the glory of God, by the grace of God, and are living under his power. And it would give us opportunities to talk to them about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray this for each one of us, and we thank you for this opportunity to study. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.